Welcome to the season three finale of the Bill Bradley Collective. In today's episode, we will be having our first biannual event called Palooza, where our hosts get out all the rants from this season that they haven't been able to say. Today, each of our hosts will have four two-minute rants, and each host is allowed two one-minute rebuttals on any other rant they'd like to hear. Our order was selected by me. And it is going to be Andrew, Ed, and then Zach in that order. One, two, three, one, two, three. So we're going to get things going with Andrew's first rant of the 2020 Rants Palooza. And just so everyone knows that's participating. And I will give you a warning 15 seconds before having your time up. Andrew, you're up. All right. Uh, as we get set to uh, mercifully at this point, uh, turn the page from 2020 into 2021. Uh, the hot button issue in every boxing fan's mind is, are we going to see an Errol Spence, Terrence Crawford super fight at 147 pounds in the calendar year 2021? And like any other sort of, it's nothing new. Uh, we've seen in the past fighters uh, beholden to different promoters in the struggle that ensues in getting those fighters in the ring. We saw it with Lance Lewis and Mike Tyson. That ends up being a co-production of HBO and Showtime which was awkward. You saw the same thing when Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather finally got to the table. It was a co-production of two of two different networks, two rival networks. The thing with this is getting this fight made, getting this fight done, the promoters seem to be willing to step aside. Um, Bob Arum, uh, Crawford's promoter, Al Heyman, Premier Boxing Champions, Spence's promoter, they seem willing, they seem willing to make the fight. You hear demands from Spence's camp that he's all in. He wants in. But he wants 60% of, of the revenue. He's even called for as much as 70%. And he says until Crawford yields uh, some of that money, it's not going to happen. What I think he should be more focused on, and I think, it, I, I think it's a bluff, because I think he knows that he needs at least another fight to be properly ready for a fighter of the caliber of Terrence Crawford. And I say that following his latest effort, which was his return after a catastrophic motor, uh, motor vehicle accident, um, came back to the ring, looked good, looked good against an overmatched yet quality opponent, Danny Garcia. If he brings that version of himself into a fight with Crawford, he's shot. He needs another fight. And if we want to, it's, it's to me, this is the, the next and the long line of De La Hoya and Trinidad, uh, Hearns and Leonard, this could be the next great welterweight unification. Ed, you're on the clock. So I have written about this before, but nobody read it. Hunting out of bounds, the way that is handled is the single stupidest thing in sports. You've got this 57-year-old insurance salesman standing on the sidelines. And he then, as the ball goes out of bounds, raises his hand, runs forward, then kind of stops, and then that's where the ball came out. Pythagoras of the parabolas could not do that. You see, dumbest thing, like, I have no problem with the chains, that's fine, but they're not within 10% on this. Here is my theory. If the ball punts, uh, goes out of bounds on a punt, it is returned to where the first down would have been for the other team and put there. This would do two things that are important. One, it would encourage rugby-style punters because they would punt the ball, it would roll, and then they could stop it at the one-yard line. 
Anything that encourages rugby-style punters, I am for, because that looks pretty cool when it happens. And then the second thing is it would discourage punting in general from, like, the 42-yard line on the offense, which is the only way you can get Adam Gase to not punt on fourth and one from the opponent 42. We have to institute this now while Adam Gase is still coaching, which should be in for Sunday's game if the ball goes out of bounds. It is where the other first down would have been, and it would stop the idiocy of the man running and then just suddenly putting his hand down and saying, well, this is where it went out, which is insane. So I'm all out on punting out of bounds. Hey, Zach, what do you have to say? Seemed like an unnecessary jet hit, but moving on. (laughs) During the primary season, there was a lot of talk about what Barack Obama would do, our famous president that many in the liberal movement has deified as one of the great liberals of all time, even though he's objectively his big, his big plan is passing a Republican healthcare plan. Um, But during the primary, a report came out that he would intervene to stop a Sanders candidacy. Then another report came out uh, that he encouraged candidates, candidates like Pete Buttigieg, who has now been rewarded with the transportation secretary. Uh, you might have known him in his prior role as the guy in Thomas the Tank Engine who bricked up that train, who misbehaved, and let him uh, die in that in that uh, bunker. That was Pete Buttigieg's former role before mayor. Um, but these are the things that Barack Obama has spent his post-presidency doing when he's not running around parasailing with billionaires, when he's not becoming a Netflix producer, is he's actively working to stop more progressive policies from coming in. He took an active role. The only role he took was to stop a candidate who would have put in significantly more progressive policies. By the way, the policies he ran on and didn't do. And that is what Barack Obama's post-president has been like. And people always try to deny this. But part of his legacy is that Donald Trump was the president that followed him. You know, Martin Van Buren followed Andrew Jackson. And part of the Martin Van Buren legacy is the recession he inherited from Andrew Jackson. That's also part of Jackson's legacy. And we continue to try to disconnect these two as if, oh, Trump has nothing to do with Obama. No, he absolutely does. And then Obama repaid us after leading to Trump by trying to stop Bernie Sanders. And that is why, like, I think myself and a lot of millennials whose first election was 2008, why we became disenchanted, cynical and hopeless about politics and why we ran into the arms of a nice Jewish man from the state of Vermont as the savior to our problems, because he's the only one. Andrew, coming back to you. So it wouldn't be a proper Rantapalooza on the show if I didn't take two minutes of my time and spend it on the world of golf. And I want to talk about, um, so this year, Bryson DeChambeau was one of the big, big newsmakers. And he essentially spent his quarantine while the PGA Tour was off, getting his body into into a shape, uh, exploiting all technological advancements with the intention of just trying to hit the golf ball literally as far as he can off the tee. Um, what that is, is him taking advantage of rules where the technology has rendered uh, golf courses, golf courses at the highest championship level in this country, increasingly obsolete. Um, it is another uh, add-on to the debate of whether or not uh, golf should sort of roll back equipment, namely the golf ball, condition the golf ball uh, in, in a manner so that it doesn't, doesn't go as far. To the point about um, rendering historic golf courses obsolete. We don't need to spend any more money lengthening golf courses. We don't need to spend any more resources doing that. 
Um, and you see these historic venues that get they get tricked up in a way where, for instance, uh, Marion Golf Course, historically short uh, by today's standards, hosted the U.S. Open less than 10 years ago. And they had to trick it up and make it impossibly difficult and basically take driver completely out of the player's hands. In regular times, this is a traditional great venue in the hands in this era. It's just this tricked up sort of it's it's almost like a mini golf course with with the fucking windmills and it's it's a joke. Um golf enters 2021, I think on I think the debate has never been louder whether or not it's time to roll back the golf ball. Um there have been calls for bifurcation of essentially uh creating rules for rules and regulations for amateurs and pros separately to adhere to. I'm not for that. Um, I could hey if I lose 10 20 yards whatever but uh something to watch for in 2021 the the debate on rolling the, rolling the ball back I will use my rebuttal on this one we have our first one minute rebuttal so I get what you're saying where, where there's a lot of concern about like the purity of golf and everything about guys coming in and just hitting the ball you know 450 yards the way Deshambo does but one thing that also has to be recognized is that golf is an exceedingly boring uh, sport to watch. I like watching it. You like watching it. My dad likes watching it because we, we play golf. We understand it's, hey, it's a few hours and you can do other things while, while the golf is on. But golf is really, really exciting when a guy hits the ball 400 yards. It's not exciting when a guy's going a 280 to 300 yards drive, then a nine iron, then a wedge, then a putt, and oh, you got a birdie or a par. It's really cool when a guy's on the green in two and you're like, oh, shit, we have an eagle that no one has any opportunity for. That's exciting. It brings the viewers in. And I think rolling that back and making the sport back to like, no, 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 no. It is more pure in a time when fewer people watched it, fewer people engaged in it. I think the time has passed. Like Tiger Woods has already changed the game. Anything post-Tiger Woods, we can't turn the back clock off, but this would turn the back the clock to a pre-Tiger. Ed, you're up. So I'm going to talk about the evangelical movement as it exists inside the Republican Party and their treatment of uh, Pastor Raphael Warnock, because clearly for Republicans, there is no difference between the term evangelical and the term white supremacist. We have seen, quote unquote, religious leaders in Georgia refer to so-called Pastor Raphael Warnock who is the pastor of the largest church in Georgia, uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church. It is the same church that Martin Luther King was pastor at. And yet somehow he is not a legitimate Christian leader. Whereas Joel Austin, who is whose home is worth $6.6 million and took $500,000 in PPP loans um, or PPP money, is a legitimate leader. Or Falwell, uh, Falwell, Jerry Falwell's kid, whose first name I've already forgotten, from Liberty University, was running really a, a scam campaign to uh, donate money to the Trump Foundation and then get paid by the Trump Foundation, was credibly accused of watching his wife have sex with their pool boy. Not that I'm against this, but it's not something that usually, um, you know, especially for the pool boy, but it's not something that normally um, that uh, Christian leaders do. And yet Warnock is not viewed as an actual Christian because he believes in feeding the poor. 
and treating people with kindness, you know, like the shit that Jesus used to talk about. So I am all out on the evangelical movement. Mike Pence is a fine example of what this means, or a guy who cut AIDS funding. It has become simply a white supremacist movement. And if Christ does exist and is looking down from heaven, I'm sure he can't stop vomiting. Zach, you're up. So I'm going to move over a little bit to the Pac-12. It's a, it's a topic we've kind of touched on but never actually specifically discussed, uh, which is the Pac-12's decision. Because the Pac-12 was one of the early conferences, I believe, with the Big Ten to say, like, we're not going to have a season. And the Big Ten changed because, of course, SEC, which is all based in Alabama, you know, Arkansas, South Carolina, Florida, a.k.a. Uh, the 80% plus Trump, Trump states, were never going to cancel their season, which then, of course, would have put the Pac-12 at this big disadvantage. Because in November, they canceled their season. They said, we're going to try for the spring, which was a responsible thing to do from a ha- from a health standpoint, from the way like their student athletes, which is a bullshit term, but the way their student athletes should be treated. It was a smart thing. And then they reversed course, I believe, in like early, no- or late September or mid-September. And then they had a season where they got crushed by cancellations. Like, the Pac-12 was missing two, three games a week. The winner of the Pac-12 North was Washington University with a record of 3-1. and 3-1. and one. The Pac-12 South winner was USC at 5-0. and oh. These were great records when college football was being played in, like, 1947. And there were, like, 11 white teams that could play each other. But this is 2020. It's three and one, and they're in the championship game with a with a chance to go to the playoffs if they if they're you know competitive enough. It, it's a joke. Like it just shows. Like I think any discussion or any view of the college football season and what a what an absolute bullshit mess it has been, where they have made many players actively sick because of this. The Pac-12 is the prism to view the season. That they are, they are, they are the, they are the microscope to which examining how fucked up and how wrong and how bullshit this season was. And I believe Ed has his first rebuttal. Yeah, I couldn't agree more because the Pac-12 wants it both ways. They want it to be responsible for the health of their student athletes, and they wanted to make money, which required playing games. And you couldn't have this both ways. The SEC was at least honest. They played their games. They didn't give a shit if the people lived or died. The players lived or died. They were black anyway. They didn't care. And they played them. The Pac-12 tried to to, to candy ass it and say, oh, we're going to do it a little bit, and maybe we can get one of our teams to go 5-0 and and make the playoffs. And, of course, that didn't happen because we had to make sure Notre Dame got in the playoffs, who – got beat by, what, 30 points in the ACC championship game and then still made it. Um, it is a – the whole thing has been a disaster, and everyone that has anything to do with college football should be ashamed of themselves. Andrew, I believe, um, also has another rebuttal? Yeah, not, not not so much a rebuttal, but it's, it's almost the worst – they almost did the worst thing in a way where they make the quote-unquote right, right call it first. They see – all of the trouble that that happened to the SEC, the ACC, um, the Big Ten, they see all that happen unfold, yet they still decide to overturn what was the correct decision. 
it's almost as if they saw that all of these other conferences were going to prosper money-wise. There was never going to be any sort of um, withholding of funds to the Pac-12 network or to their, of their contractual obligations to Fox or ESPN. And to, to see, to, to, to make the conscious decision after seeing how it clearly was not working, to then decide to try to have this shotgun season, they're almost like the most villainous in a, in, in, in a, in a, in a way, in a way. I'm good. All right. And Andrew, back to you for your next rant. Um, so, you know, as you all know, uh, Zach and I have the shared misery of Jets fandom. And I'm sure I've alluded to it before. I also have another misery in my life, and that is rooting for the New York Knicks. Uh, over the last 20 years, it's been a bumpy ride of regime changes. GMs, coaches, players, in and out, turnover, very little I, I believe one playoff series win in two decades uh, in in New York, and it's it's uh, it, for a proud franchise. Prior to you know the turning of the millennium, uh, this year again another new era, a new guy running the play, uh, basketball operations. When Leon Rose hired in the tradition of like a Rob Polinka, and for the Lakers and locally a Brody Van Wagenen who's already out as Mets uh, GM. But they all share in common that they are formerly player agents. Um, there is a belief, there is a belief that the hiring of Leon Rose is uh, going to make the Knicks a more desirable destination for free agents. Um, I'm going to call bullshit on one thing, and the one thing is the Knicks' biggest problem over the last 20 years, and actually well before that, is not necessarily an inability to land free agents. It has been they have been probably, maybe, the worst drafting team in all of professional sports. In my lifetime, and we can go back actually a year before, 1987, they drafted a point guard, Mark Jackson. He's calling games with Mike Breen, uh, Van Gundy, on ESPN now. Made one all-star team. Drafted in 87. Since then, the Knicks have drafted, drafted two, two players that have made all-star teams. Kristaps Porzingis, in his prime, he's not a Nick anymore. David Lee. Anybody remember or give a fuck about David Lee? The test for Leon Rose, to me, going forward, the Knicks need to start drafting some fucking players. And I think, and, and we'll see what we have here with, with the likes of Obi Toppin, with the likes of Mitchell Robinson, with the likes of, I, I, I'm not liking what I've seen from, from uh, Kevin Knox, RJ Barrett, we'll see. Tom Thibodeau gives me reason for, opt for optimism, the new coach. He's credible, he's sharp, but he needs players, and that's on Leon Rose, and it's not through free agency, it's through the draft. Ed, what do you got to say? So I'm going to use up my last rebuttal here. All right. The Tom Thibodeau hiring is inexplicable to me. First of all, this team has to have a huge rebuild. They're not two players away. There's four players away. I mean, they're two players away if, if it's LeBron and Jordan, but it's not. They're not going to get those guys. Tom Thibodeau is 62 years old, gets along with no one ever for any reason. He's 65. And uh, 50, 58. What, what is he? It's 58. I, I, thought he was, I thought he was older than me. Regardless, you know what I don't want to do at my age? Hang around with Kevin Knox and try to get him to play defense. They drafted a middle-aged guy in Obi Topin who's like tw 25. He's 24, but he's older than their last three picks. And... By the time and, get, and, get, and gets more time. Though, I was wrong. 
Sorry, he was born in 58. He's 62. So give Ed all the time he wants. I apologize for skipping your tweet. I'm reclaiming born my time. I'm reclaiming my time. I'm yes, reclaiming you are. my time. Yes, um, Resetting the clock. Resetting the clock. The time. I'm going right. Back. I was wrong. I'm going Maxine Water on your ass. But um, <laughs> but he's hired this six, they've got this older guy who can't get along with anybody other than Jimmy Butler to coach this team that could not play good defense even if they wanted to, and they don't. And he is going to have be ready to jump off a bridge. It didn't work with him rebuilding the Minnesota Timberwolves, who had much better young players. So I don't know why this is supposed to work. I guess if 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 they can't get him to work, they'll hire Hubie Brown. And Zach, you're up. So I'm going to go a little bit back to politics here, where my rant is about the fact that every four years we have presidential elections. And every four years, people are continually surprised that we have an electoral college, even though we have had the system for 223 some odd years and, you know, 50, 60 some odd presidential elections. Um, people still are like, oh, this is bullshit. If you don't win the popular vote, you can lose the election. Yes. Yes. This has happened multiple times. It happened in like 1876 or whatever. It, like, it happens all the time. It's happened frequently. And I think it's one of those things that when you look at like our public education system and private education, because even fucking people that go to Trinity College and Notre Dame don't fucking understand this. Why are we surprised every four years that this is how our election system works? This is my, I don't know, 10th election since I've been alive, eighth election since I've been alive. By the fourth one, when I was, I don't know, 12, I pretty much understood how our election systems work. But instead, we have people going, wait a second, wait a second. You're telling me. You only have to win like 19 states and you can become president. It's like, yes, we learned this in fifth grade. You knew that happened. This is what happened four years ago. It was what happened eight years ago. It will be what happened in four years from now. Why are we surprised that this is how our election system works? It's like going to bed at night and being surprised the sun is up in the morning. Like it's just, it is going to fucking happen. Why is this surprising? It drives me insane that people are like, well, this system's bullshit. Yes, it's been bullshit for years. And who cares? We know it's going to happen again. Nothing's going to change. And it's just insane to me. That people keep acting and just running into a brick wall and going, ah, that brick wall's still there. Yeah, motherfucker's going to be there in four years, too. And it's going to be there in eight, and it was there four years ago. It, it just drives me insane that people do not fundamentally understand how our elections work, even though they've had multiple, multiple elections in their lifetime. All right, Andrew, you're ne next, and these are going to be each and every one of yours final rants of the Rants of Palooza. Andrew and Zach, you both still have one one-minute rebuttal. So I think the best sort of undrafted free agent from last week's veto pool would be the Heisman Trophy, which I believe should be deleted and just detonated to the to the sun. Um, first of all, it's to me it is it's not so much the worst; it is the most easily the most overrated trophy in all of sports. Um, first of all, the it's, it's awarded by the Downtown Athletic Club, which is based in Midtown Manhattan. When was the last time college football had any sort of local relevance to New York City? When? Never. What, Rutgers? UConn? Are we going to count Syracuse and Boston College? Like, no. It, it comes from this entity that has no relationship to like college football at all. New York City. It doesn't. All kinds of famous 
biases and listen, if you're not a quarterback or a running back or your name is Charles Woodson, essentially you're not going to win this trophy. You need to be a quarterback or a running back. You generally need to come from east of the Mississippi, which is where for, in, in the trophy's infancy, it was literally awarded to the best college football player east of the Mississippi River. Um, the way it's literally a thousand members, a thousand media members cast votes for this thing. Uh, Nissan also actually sponsors a fan vote where tens of millions of fans can vote for this. And guess what that counts for? It counts for one vote. Interesting how that how that works. Representative democracy, if you will, at work. It's almost offensive how ballyhooed and how celebrated it is in a non-COVID year. It is it is a huge ESPN markets the shit for a month out of the Heisman Trophy presentation. Eight o'clock Saturday night after after the last week of regular season college football before we get into the bowls. It's just to me, it's irrelevant. It doesn't it awards a great college football player, of which there are probably dozens every year. Most years, there's more. There's there's some that are much more deserving than the actual winner. Um, just get rid of it. Don't need it. Ed, your final rant of 2020. So I'm going to go back to a stupid thing about football, and this time fantasy football. All four of us are in the same fantasy football league. All four of us are not in the playoffs. Yes, all of us are not in the playoffs. Uh but, you know, last year, Brandon and I battled it out right to literally the last play of the of, of week six, 17. Um, and the dumbest thing about fantasy football, which is admittedly stupid to begin with, is the way defenses are scored. Because you can shut out a team. You start with 10 points and then go up or down. It's the only thing like this. And you get, and I could never figure out what the hell counts for what? But I do know this. The Rams earlier this year gave up 44 points in a game and scored 17 points because they scored two touchdowns, which is okay. They scored two touchdowns in garbage time. They gave up 44 points. How do you get – how if you were – your job as a defense is to stop teams from scoring. And – when you stop teams from scoring, you don't get anything because it's all on these kind of gimmicky plays. If you get a – first of all, a safety should be worth like 15 if you're going to do it. Like it's really hard to get safeties. So make safeties worth a lot. It, combine it with the punt, the rugby-style punters and you really got something. But the whole thing is idiotic in the way it's d- d- decided. I think – the team should not have fit. The league should get rid of their defenses. It's just kind of annoying. I stream defenses all the time. It's fine. You just play against whoever's playing the worst team in football. I won't mention who it is. And you get 12 points and it doesn't hurt. You can also get minus five and have a game that you were winning become a loss. And that's stupid. But defenses should be scored on their ability to keep other teams from scoring. That's what they should be scored, scored on. But that has nothing to do with it. I hate it all. We should just get rid of defenses out of there. The only reason I don't want to get rid of kickers is my kicker was really good this year, and I'll probably have to keep him for next year because you can get a guy like Young Ho in there, and that's cool. I don't know of why anyone wants defenses in fantasy football. All right, I believe both Andrew and Zach are both using the rebuttal on this. Is that correct? We yeah. All right, Zach, why don't you start it up, and then uh, we'll go to Andrew. First off, I will say safety should not be worth 15 points. (laughs) 
because if you if you would just pick whatever defense is facing the Eagles because they had three straight weeks with safeties this year, which is, by the way, I believe a first. It's incredibly hard to do. And the Eagles, so you just whoever's playing the Eagles, fuck them. They're, they're the new Jets. But like, but you do get points uh, for, for stopping your team from scoring. You get 10. You get 10 points if you shut the other team out. Plus, if you shut them out, you probably get interceptions and sacks. Um, I do, I do agree that defensive scoring seems to be all over the place. Where like an interception is two, but then an interception touchdowns like four, and then a fumble recovery is like six. It it's all over the place. But it is better than IDPs, which are just like I don't know. What's one guy you can name on the defense? Just draft him. That yeah, it's better than that at least. Andrew, go ahead. 100% in on um, getting rid of team defenses, uh, what Zach was saying at the end there. I think I think a proper format would be a lineman, a linebacker, a defensive back, if you want to do it that way. So then you get, you know, whatever, sacks, tackles for loss, picks, whatever. Okay. I got bigger bones to pick with fantasy football. And I say this as a pretty fucking mediocre fantasy football player. I've got a track record going back 20 years of just flat-out mediocrity. My biggest problem with fantasy football would be the fact that as we in, in, in proper sports where point differential, where run differential have become a way to better inform us of future performance, the purest way to actually crown the quote unquote best fantasy football team, the best drafted team. Why are we doing head to head every week? You can't stop the other team. If I lose 130 to 125, Four other teams win that score 75. Why do I take the L and they take the W? How does that make sense? How are they better than my team? That's my TED Talk. I'm out. Go, going with Cuba's fantasy style. Fuck <laughs> yeah, man. And our last round of 2020. Zach, what do you got? So I, so I think that this is only fitting because this is a term that started getting a lot of traction in 2019, much like COVID, and then has simply just made 2020 a lot worse much like COVID, and that is the use of the term gaslighting by people. Now, gaslighting is like a form of legitimate actual emotional abuse where you just kind of torture somebody into believing a reality that's not a reality, where they have to believe something that's simply not true. And somehow that term got used in politics, and I'm sure it's related to Trump, because of course it's fucking related to Trump, because everything's goddamn related to Trump, where people just started using the term gaslighting to mean anything. Anything. It became meaningless. Where If you were talking to somebody and you're like, hey, you know, I really think these tax breaks, you know, are bad. And they go, well, I think they're good. And you're like, well, okay, they have this effect where blah, 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 you know, this Goldman Sachs gets $356 billion. They go, oh, you're gaslighting me. No, we're, we're disagreeing. I'm not emotionally abusing you. I'm not locking you in a room and forcing and torturing you to listen until you believe my way of life. It has become meaningless. And in English... Words matter, and the way we talk matters, and rhetoric matters, because words are beautiful. They are able to express thoughts. They are able to create a picture for people to better understand something. And when words become meaningless, we are ruining the art form that is the English language. We are destroying the pictures and the beauty that come from our our spoken word and making it functionally meaningless. And we are just – it is something that has been so irritating – because just because you know a word doesn't mean you should use that word all the time. If someone disagrees with you, just disagree. It's a disagreement. But it is a word that I have seen constantly used in 2020 
And I've seen it more used because I'm stuck in my fucking house because of COVID and reading Twitter and all these fucking things. It, it always ends, much like the Hitler paradox, it always ends with somebody going, oh, you're gaslighting me. It's, no, you're just wrong. Or you're right. And it's just disagreeing. For fuck's sake, can we just make words matter again? We can all words matter. Jesus. We should do that as our, we should do the movie Gaslight as our next movie. <laughs> was, it a, was it a play originally? Is that, am I wrong I, about I that? I think so, but the movie is with Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Check it out. By the way, the, all right. the, the use of the word, uh, the thing of English being beautiful is brought to you by uh, 18 years of living with an English teacher in my as a father. <laughs> yeah, who was really super, super judgy about word choice. <laughs> Language is important. Language matters. I'm here. I'm with you on that. And that'll conclude it for the season finale of the Bill Bradley Collective. Goodbye, 2020. And we'll see you all back in 2021 with the Bill Bradley Collective. I want to talk about evangelicals, specifically right-wing evangelicals, and the Reverend Warnick campaign. Because what has become abundantly clear is the term evangelical and the term white supremacist are absolutely equivalent. Hang on. I'm going to have to do this again. Alicia's locked outside. Got it. Let's vamp, baby. Andrew, did my count? Did you, did you get what oh, I was saying? That was like, yeah, and I, and I didn't really look at it as like a counterpoint. I don't really have a side necessarily. I don't want yeah, to I see do. the game go back to... No, You're. I, I think you're right, frankly. Um... But when you're hitting hitting short irons 200 yards, yeah, yeah, a little much. 375 yards off the tee is a little much. Yeah, like, when guys are when guys are out driving, you know, us with their seven iron, it's like, oh shit. Like, these guys are hitting seven irons over 200 yards. I mean, yeah. regularly. Um, well, you're, there's a lot to what you said about how my favorite golf site is literally called NoLayingUp.com, and NoLayingUp means aggression, <laughs> hitting the ball long. Like, you know what I mean? The famous scene in Tin Cup is him trying to carry the water. In today's game, that's a fucking, like, eight iron. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, he, There's all the consternation, but it's yeah, now it's not even a question whether he's going to go for it or not. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's hitting the driver. You know, DeChambo would pull out, like, a nine iron. <laughs> nine fucking... iron like, to clear that water. No, you're, you're absolutely right about everything you said. I think a lot of it was um, Tiger was really the first guy to, like, work out. You know, yeah, it, the, physical condition and also just club head speed too. Yeah, nobody was swinging a club that hard, um, no. that fast. But yeah, I mean, John Daly, how many eyes did he attract to the game, right or wrong? Why? Right. Because chicks dig the long ball. Yeah, he's still a fucking hero. <laughs> he's sitting around at Hooters, just fucking smoking cigarettes, living his best life because he hit a ball four hundred yards. His kid's going to Arkansas this year on a, on a golf scholarship, and he's good. <laughs> yeah, he looks exactly he's like good. him too. Same person. It's the same guy. <laughs> I'm not convinced it's uh it's John Daly after Botox. <laughs> all right. So I'm gonna start it all over again. Okay. Yep. Start with the evangelicals. Yeah, very excited about the way you were taking that. 
All right, three, two, one.